Well, friends, we have uh, reached a, a point in the life of the church in which they had come to a point of great discouragement. A great discouragement. In the first place, Stephen, this deacon who was so zealous for the Lord, had been arrested and stoned to death. Stephen was gone. Second, this man Saul, this firebrand, this young, zealous youth, this student of Gamaliel, sought as the sole purpose of his life to find every single member of the Christian church, to find every single believer, and to have him arrested, dragged before the council, and killed. And as a result of that, the church scatters in every direction. Now last week, we saw how that very persecution, which caused the Christians to scatter in every direction, worked for the increase of the church. And we'll remember the specific example of that was that Philip went all the way to Samaria. Went all the way into the land of the Samaritans and there preached and had a dramatic effect upon the, uh, upon the uh, Samaritan people there. And many came to Christ and were saved. And then you'll remember that there was one man on his way to Azotus, on the, on the way to Gaza. And, and uh, God also sent Philip to that road, that desolate road, to find that man and to preach Christ to him also. And yet, if you put yourself in the shoes of the church at the time, you must think, wait, things are, it's over, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's pretty much done. Uh, the church in Jerusalem is scattered. The apostles were probably laying low at the time. Stephen is dead. Nobody else is going to dare step out and preach Christ at this time with this kind of a threat hanging over their shoulders. And this man Saul will finally succeed in mopping up the last of the Christians and uh, it will be all over. And we have to smile, don't we? Because we know how the Lord works. We know how the Lord works. You know the old saying that man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. And now God acts once more for his people. And out of the blood of Stephen comes this man who had a greater effect upon the world of that time and of our time than of any other living human person. I think I could say that. I know that's a bit speculative, but I think that's probably correct. That out of the, out of the, out of the blood of Stephen rises this man, Saul. Now, I'm going to call him in this sermon Paul, because that's just what we're always used to calling him. And I'll never keep it straight, Saul and Paul, so I'm just going to call him Paul from now on. But I want to consider with you the rise of this man, Paul. And I want to think, especially in the first place, of Paul's confidence and second, of Paul's confidence shattered. Now, Paul's confidence in the first place then. Paul's confidence. Because Paul was a man full of fiery zeal. And he tells us that in Galatians 1. And on the front page of the outline, you can see what he says in Galatians 1. That he persecuted the church of God beyond measure. As you read it there. Beyond measure. And tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Saul was burning with zeal to crush out this religion and to advance the religion of his fathers. 
Now in Philippians 3, we can read something of the basis for Paul's confidence at this time. And in Galatians 3 and verse 4, he gives us a list of all the things uh, that, he, that gave him such confidence that he was on God's side. Shall I put it that way? He was on God's side. Now, of course he was on God's side, at least in his own mind, because he says in verse 4 of Philippians 3 that he had great confidence, even in the flesh. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If anyone had a right to think that he was really a close friend of God, Paul had even more. First of all, he was circumcised the eighth day, right? Checked, and maybe we can just check the boxes as we go down this list. Circumcised the eighth day, right? Of the nation of Israel. He wasn't like that Ethiopian eunuch, right? A, a Gentile. He was of the nation of Israel. But not just of the nation of Israel, because the third item on his list here is of the tribe of Benjamin, right? You might say an Israelite of the Israelites. He was... He was one of the most zealous of the Israelites, as the Benjamites often were known at the time. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, now every Jew had an obligation to obey the law, no question about that, but as to the law, this man was a Pharisee. In other words, a man who gave the strictest obedience to every jot and tittle of the law. He dotted every I, he crossed every T. If there was even the least breath or hint of a commandment. Paul was all over it. And he kept the law with a minute and precise accuracy. As to zeal, he says in verse 6, a persecutor of the church. Right? Paul didn't just talk about how important Judaism once was. He actually launched a full-scale persecution of those who contradicted the Jewish religion. So he was a persecutor. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So this is, you might say, the pillars in Paul's house. And his confidence is, is established on these pillars. That he's an Israelite, he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, and the righteousness which the law requires, blameless. Well, my friends, such is Paul's confidence. However, as we know, cracks begin to form in this building. In these pillars that Paul had based his confidence on, cracks began to form. And that's my second point then. Paul's confidence shattered. Now, the, the basis uh, for this actually wasn't in the text that we read. There are three places in the book of Acts where Paul talks about what happened to him on the way of Damascus. And he, and he says in... It's in Acts 22, then he says it again in Acts 26. In Acts 26 and verse 14, when Paul receives from Jesus this experience, or this, this, the light comes down in Damascus, in Acts 26 and verse 14, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that much we had in Acts 9. But then he also notes in Acts 26 and verse 14 that Jesus said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And it was these goads, my friends, these pricks, right? That those goads would have been sharp points that farmers would have used to, to get their oxen moving, right? When their oxen slowed down or they wouldn't move, you'd poke them with, right? And it was sharp, and, and then it would get, keep the, 
oxen moving, going about their work as you expected them to do. And now Jesus says to Paul on the way to Damascus, why are you kicking against those? Right? I'm, 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 Jesus says, I'm, I'm putting these things in your life which are beginning to, to crack up this confidence that you have. And you keep kicking against it. Now I want to consider some of these goads with you. What might some of these things have been that were pricking and poking at the Apostle Paul as he, as he was living in Judaism as a student of Gamaliel? Well, the first one I've given you there is Stephen's teaching. Don't forget that Stephen had been doing a great deal of teaching and preaching in Jerusalem before he was arrested and stoned. And remember that the number one claim that Stephen made was that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting and looking for, and that this was proven by his resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul objects to that. Paul objects, and he thinks to himself, well, that's impossible. Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin. That's the most holy of the holy groups in in the Jewish religion. You can't get higher than the Sanhedrin. Again, I've told you before, that's like the Supreme Court. Now, if Paul was condemned by these, the holiest of men, certainly he can't be. I'm sorry, if, if Jesus was condemned by this holy Sanhedrin, then certainly he can't be the Messiah. That's impossible. They wouldn't condemn their own Messiah king. Second of all, how could Jesus be the Messiah when he was crucified? He was nailed to a cross. And again, we're so used to this language, right, that that we don't think like a Jewish person, but a Jewish person, and even a Roman person at this time, to be nailed to a cross was a, a, a way to die reserved for the very lowest of the criminals. The Messiah of, of, of Judaism would never have been nailed to a cross as one of the lowest criminals in, in, in society at the time. That's impossible. So you might say Paul would have argued with himself. Again, this goad, this prick comes in Paul's conscience. Is Jesus the Messiah? Well, he can't possibly be. He was condemned by the Sahedrin. He died on a cross. And yet, Paul knows the Old Testament probably better than anyone here. And immediately these words jump in his mind. I put them in there from Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, he was smitten of God, punished by God. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You must believe that Saul must have, Saul must have, have thought about such, such a verse and thought, that does sound kind of like the experience of what Jesus had. He was crushed. He was pierced. It did seem like he had been smitten by God on the cross. Another goad, another prick that came to Paul at this time. What about that empty tomb? It's true. I mean, there's just no, there's no arguing about it, right? The second goal, the second prick in Paul's conscience, the tomb was empty. Where had the body of Jesus gone? Furthermore, there were many people alive at that very time who claimed to have saw Jesus alive. Now, they could all be lying, but that many people lying? Again, you wonder that Paul's thinking about this. Where had the body of Jesus gone? Why was the tomb empty? 
doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that the, that the Roman soldiers would have done something with him. They had no motive. Why would the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, why would the temple guard have gone and taken the body of Jesus? That really doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's impossible to believe that the disciples were somehow able to break through that Roman guard and steal the body. Another goat. Another prick. Paul doesn't have an answer to this. What would have happened to the body of Jesus? A third goad, a third goad. And that is that when Saul was standing next to the persecutor to the execution of Stephen, and when they were hurling those dreadful stones at Stephen until he died, Stephen had suddenly looked up into heaven and had seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, what can that mean? I mean, that, that God, the great king, was in heaven. There was no question about that. But Stephen had claimed that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who'd been walking around Palestine, was standing at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Now, anybody who was at the right hand of God the Father in heaven would be in a position of privilege and authority and power. No question about that. And Stephen had said that Jesus was there. And he had seen him with his own eyes. And you can imagine Saul as he's watching over the garments and making sure the coats and the, and the belongings of all these people who are engaged in this horrific act, making sure that everything's okay and tidy and nobody's you know, taking what's not theirs. But you, you can see him looking and, and, and thinking, what is this? Stephen says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Could that possibly be true? And Saul himself had known. I mean, Saul had captured many Christians and dragged them before the Sanhedrin and probably watched them being executed as well. And he had seen the faith of these Christians refusing to give in, even at the point of persecution, even at the point of losing their life. They refused to surrender their faith in Jesus Christ. And I have to believe that that was another goad, another prick, another stabbing in Paul's conscience. Where did these people get this kind of strength? to stand so strong even in the face of losing their life. And Stephen, I imagine that must have come back to him again and again. What did Stephen see at the right hand of God? A fourth goad. Now this one is not in our passage here, but it's very clearly given us by Paul himself in Romans chapter 7. And that's why I read this when I read the law this morning about coveting in Romans 7 and verses 7 through 10. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting, so that's the, the tenth commandment, if the law had not said, Thou shalt, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. There, we have a pretty good clue, don't we, dear friends? That when Paul says in 
uh, in Philippians that in terms of the law, I was blameless. That's what he said, remember? What a, what a claim to make. In terms of the righteousness that the law requires, blameless. And yet in Romans 7, we have a clue already that even that was starting to crack. Especially when Paul read about the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment. Because the 10th commandment is not so much about stealing, right? Taking something that belongs to others. It's not about committing adultery. It's not about some public act of bearing false witness or dishonoring your parents. But see, coveting takes place in here, doesn't it? Coveting takes place in our hearts, in our minds. If you were committing, as I already said, if you were committing an act of coveting, I wouldn't know it. I would have no way of seeing it. But what Paul says in Romans 7 is that when he began to think about the 10th commandment, a whole new universe of sin was discovered by him that he had never seen before. As to the law, Paul says, I was blameless until the Spirit of God brought home with power to his own conscience and to his own mind what the 10th commandment really meant. Thou shalt not covet. And suddenly Paul saw that within his heart there was a great deal of covetousness. Sin came alive, Paul says, and I died. Of course, he didn't physically die. It means that the law condemned him Before the courtroom of God, he was condemned to death because he saw so much coveting in his own heart and so much sin there that he realized that far from being blameless was that he stood condemned before the courtroom of God. Later in Romans 3, he will say those those words at the end of, of Romans 1 and 2 and 3 when he's talking about the sin of man. He'll close that section by saying, All the world stands condemned before God and their mouth is stopped. In other words, they have no defense to make for themselves anymore. Oh, that must have been in Paul's experience as well. When he saw this sin of covetousness, and then I must believe, my friends, that as Paul went through the other commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, he began to realize that the law had a great deal more to say than just stealing something in an external way, but that stealing could be committed in one's heart. Adultery certainly can be committed in one's heart. Dishonoring our parents is something that's not just in words and in actions, but begins in our hearts. And so Paul found that not only did he stand condemned before the 10th commandment, but he stood condemned before all the commandments. And now, my friends, that the facade that Paul's righteousness is, he thought it blameless. It's beginning to crack up. The last goad is is really more or less what I've been saying already. Righteousness, this, this thing that every Jew was chasing, knowing and trying hard to be righteous. And not only did Paul see already in this fourth goad that he himself wasn't righteous, but I have to believe that as Paul began to look at Judaism itself, Look at that Sanhedrin. The holiest of men are there. And yet Saul knew, as most Jews knew, that there was so much corruption in the Sanhedrin, it was ridiculous. Right? The Sadducees, again, were very powerful people. The money, you know, follow the money, they always say, right? Oh, there was all these dynamics within the Sanhedrin, okay? And there was as much corruption in the Sanhedrin as in any uh, body of people in the world. 
And again, not only was Paul unrighteous, but even when he looked at the Jewish people themselves, he saw so much unrighteousness. I think that blameless that he saw didn't apply to him, didn't apply to the religion that he confessed either. And then, my friends, the last goad, which I'm not really calling a goad, I'm just saying, now this is the trip to Damascus. Saul is so hot in his zeal that when he can't find any more Christians in Jerusalem, he asks the high priest for letters giving him permission to go to other cities and other villages to find the Christians there and to drag them back to Jerusalem. This man is burning in zeal. Let me ask you this this morning, my friends. Do you think it's possible that maybe Paul's zeal was fueled by this desire stamp out these dreadful goads that kept pricking at his conscience. That if he couldn't get rid of them by arguments, perhaps he could mask them, perhaps he could drown them out in a flood of new zeal. And if there's no Christians left to arrest in Jerusalem, I'll get letters and I'll go to other cities. I've heard that there's a lot of Christians in Damascus. I'll go to Damascus and I'll catch every Christian there and I'll drag them back. And Paul doesn't care if you're man or woman, child or older one. His zeal is burning so hot that he'll, he'll capture anybody that he can capture. When Paul is given permission to do this and he takes off, we read in, again, one of those other chapters, whether it's Acts 22 or 26, we read in one of those other descriptions of this time that Paul was approaching Damascus at, at noon. My friends, the man was traveling at noon. You don't travel at noon in those countries at that time. It's too hot. The sun in Syria would have just been burning down upon him with heat. But this man is so hot in his zeal that he, that, he, that he pushes through even the heat of a Middle Eastern summer. And at noon, when other people would be resting, laying aside their work for a while, he pushes forward. He won't stop. Until finally, after this week-long journey, and think about that, my friends, when he's on a week-long journey, riding in a, in a chariot or a, or a wagon of some kind, now he's got time to think. Right in Jerusalem, I imagine he was busy, searching, looking, going all over, trying to keep up with his own studies and trying to find more Christians to persecute. He was busy, probably didn't have a lot of time for thinking. But now on the way to Damascus, all he can do is sit. And all he can do is sit and think with his thoughts about all these things that are going through his mind. And goad, prick after prick, stab after stab, these, these things keep coming back to him as he's traveling on that road to Damascus. And then, my friends, and then, as he's, as he's drawing near to the city, and again, it says in the book of Acts elsewhere that it was noon, the Syrian sun would have been as bright as any sunshine you ever can imagine. And suddenly, out of heaven, comes the bolt of light, bolt of light that throws the Syrian sun even into a shadow. This light is so powerful, such a blaze of light and glory comes down on the Apostle Paul that he's knocked from his horse and it says in the book of Acts elsewhere that even the men who were with him were knocked to the ground. Now this is a goad that he can't resist any longer, can he? And as he lays there, this proud man, burning in zeal with, it, with, the, with the anguish of his own mind as he deals with these different pricks of his, of his conscience and of his own mind, suddenly he hears from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Persecuting who? Why are you persecuting my people? 
Why are you persecuting believers? No. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Remember what uh, the Apostle Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira. You haven't lied unto us. You've lied unto God. And now Jesus says to, 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 to Paul, why are you persecuting me? By persecuting my people, you are persecuting me. And you're, you're working overtime all day, all night, Paul, to dismiss the call of my call, my call that's coming to you in your mind. And you're persecuting me. And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And then comes the words, the awful truth that Paul had been trying to dismiss for so long. I am Jesus. I am Jesus. Oh, what must have, what an what a, what a earthquake, what a revolution in the mind of Paul. When he went the one moment from hating Jesus with a bitter hatred to realizing that Stephen was right. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And far from Jesus being the enemy, he is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been looking for. And I've been persecuting him. Can you imagine, my friends, what, what a convulsion there must have been in the mind of this man as he lay on that road to Damascus with the blaze of that sun or the blaze of that light shining all around him. And he hears the voice, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. That's a goad. He can't kick against that anymore. Elsewhere in the book of Philippians, Paul says, he apprehended me. He arrested me. Paul saw what Stephen saw. And the conclusion is simple. Jesus is the Son of God. I was thinking this week about that, my friends. That aside, of course, from the coming of Christ and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, this must be the most important event in the history of time. And I I don't lay any kind of authority for saying that. I just, I, I can't think of an event in history which can compare to this blaze of light knocking Paul off his opinion that Jesus was the enemy to the fact that Jesus was Lord. What possibly could be more significant than that? And so it changed. Paul's life changed radically. No longer did he kick against that prick. No longer did he kick against that goat. But he surrendered. He surrendered. He gave up the victory and admitted defeat. And Christ won him. Christ apprehended him. Christ took hold of him and changed him from an enemy to a fierce, zealous promoter of the very name that he had sought to stamp out. What a glorious picture, my friends. What a glorious, not a picture, what a glorious reality of true conversion and of what God does in the life of his people. I entitled the sermon this morning, my friends, Has Something Happened in Your Life? I hope to consider that in my second point of application. But boy, did something happen in Paul's life. Something happened in Paul's life. I wonder how many times Paul in his life was able to go back to that place, to that spot on the road where that light 
knocked him off his horse and knocked him off that idea that Jesus was the enemy. At any rate, I want to consider with you first something of a more theological nature, God's call, because I think we see illustrated in our scripture this morning this wonderful truth that we as churches confess that there is this call of God and we distinguish between God's call. And I think our Sunday school and catechism students will remember these terms, right? That there is this general call of God, right? The preaching of the gospel as it goes forth to all who will hear it. And that all people are called to repent. Remember what on the day of Pentecost, remember what Peter said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is that whosoever that goes forth to all people to repent and to turn from their sins and to come to Christ for salvation. There is that general call of the gospel. And that is the truth that is given us in Article 9 of our Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort in this church is a confessional statement whereby we confess the truths of how we understand what the scriptures teach. And I put Article 9 for you on the, on the uh, outline there. You can also find this on page 272 in the Forms and Prayers book that is also in the pew in front of you. But on the outline, let's read this together. So Article 9 of our canon say, The fact that many who are called through the ministry of the gospel do not come and are not brought to conversion must not be blamed on the gospel, nor on Christ who is offered through the gospel, nor on God who calls them through the gospel and even bestows various gifts on them, but on the people themselves who are called. Some in self-assurance do not even entertain the word of life. Others do entertain it, but do not take it to heart. And for that reason, after the fleeting joy of a temporary faith, they relapse. Others choke the seed of the word with the thorns of life's cares and with the pleasures of the world and bring forth no fruits. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower. So this is the teaching of our fathers, that in the, in the gospel preaching and in the gospel as it goes forth, there is this general call where God calls people to forsake their sin and to put their trust in Jesus. But as our canons teach us here, there's a good deal of, these, uh, of this call that is not a successful, if I may put it that way. And did we see that in the life of Paul? Right? These goads, these pricks, where God called him. And God called him again. And God called him again. But every time, Paul was, was successful in dismissing it. Or in pushing it aside. Maybe he, with a fresh burst of zeal, he would try to catch more Christians to quiet that voice within him. But there was that general call that Saul was able to successfully resist and to push from him. And our, our canons give us right these examples that some don't even entertain the word of life. They just stop their ears. They don't want to hear it. Others do hear it, but don't take it seriously. Right? They just come and they go. It goes in one ear and out the other. Others do believe it. It says... Uh, they have a temporary faith, right? Now, of course, temporary faith is not true saving faith, but they do have sort of a temporary, they, they hear it, they, they embrace it in a sense. They, they have a temporary faith, but, but soon when, when the going gets tough, they relapse, right? They give it up and they fall away from it. Others, uh, they, they, the seed is choked out. And again, they, they, uh, the canons brings the, uh, the parable of the sower as an example of the seed that goes is scattered, but it gets choked out by all these different kinds of either the rocky soil or the thorny soil and the, the, the seed that falls on the path. All these are illustrations then of God's general call, which is resisted by people, pushed away from them, and which finally they'll resist to their own destruction. But for all that, there is such a call. Then in Article 10, and this is the glory and 
uh, the glory of the Reformed faith. Because we teach that there's another call of God. Another call of God that is compared to God's call when he created the world. And it's a call that still is resisted, but it it is never successfully resisted. And this is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. That no matter how hard he fought against this call, no matter how hard he tried to push it away from him, no matter how hard he tried to drown it in in a burst of fresh zeal, he could not successfully resist it. And on that road, just outside the city of Damascus, God's call knocked him down. And he surrendered. He had to give in. We read about this in Article 10, where the Canons of Dort teach us that the fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose his own in Christ, so within time he effectively, right, and there's the key word, he effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness, into this marvelous light, and may not boast in themselves, but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. So this is what the teaching of many churches would be today, right? That God calls. And he calls with this general call. But that's all God does. And then if people are going to be saved, well, let's just say there's 100 people, and the preaching goes forth to these people, and 25 of these people hear the gospel believe it, repent of their sins, and come to Christ for salvation. Now, what made the difference? What made the difference? And this is what the theologians at the Synod of Dort are asking us this morning. What made the difference? Because the the preaching went to all of them. So it must not have been the call. It must have been the people who made a choice to believe that call. No. No, says the canons of Dort. And no, says Scripture. And no, says Acts chapter 9, when we study the life of the Apostle Paul. What made the difference was that there is a unique call, separate from that general call. It is the call of the Spirit of God, that he goes into the hearts of those who he has chosen from a never-begun eternity, and he changes that heart. That's what happened on the creation of the world, right? When God said, let there be light, light was formed by the very fact of that call. It's a creative word, isn't it? Let there be a separation right between the, the sky and the earth. Let this happen. Let there be. Let there be on each of the six days. And each time, the word of God that goes forth creates the very thing that it's calling for. Now, my friends, that's exactly how we are to understand the call of God. This effectual call is the word that is often used. This effectual call. And that when this call goes forth, it creates the very faith that it is calling for. Right? The preacher stands in front of the people. He says, believe in Jesus Christ. But now when the call goes forth effectually, when it's word, when the call and the Spirit of God go forth, the very faith that the preacher calls forth, God creates in the heart of that person. God brings that person to believe. Now in a very dramatic and unforgettable way, this happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. And sometimes I wonder if that isn't why the Spirit of God gave us this story. Because here we actually almost see it literally with our eyes. We see a man fighting against God, resisting that call. Until that moment comes when God is too strong for him. And God knocks him off that horse. 
God changes his heart. God gives him faith. God gives him repentance. And Paul now comes to believe the very gospel that he worked so hard to stamp out. But that's the difference, my friends, between the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. And the key point to remember is that that effectual call is never successfully resisted. Of course, it's resisted every day, but it is never successfully resisted. And there comes that point in the life of all God's chosen people when God will be too strong for them, when God will change their heart, when God will call them out of darkness by that creative word, let there be light, God will say, in the heart of this one, and they will be saved. And that's why the glory for our salvation, my friends, does not belong to us and any choice that we made. Yes, we'll make a choice, but it'll only be because God went before, changed our heart, and called us out of darkness and into his light. Yes, then we make many choices for God. But until that effectual call goes forth, the unregenerate sinner never does anything that is pleasing to God. And that's why our fathers have taught us to make that distinction. And it's such an important distinction. We must not let that go. An important biblical truth is at stake, my friends. That our salvation is all of God's sovereign working and God's sovereign grace. And you see that in such a literal, such a dramatic way in the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus. Well, my friends, experientially in application number two, what we confess theologically now also becomes our own experience in our own life. And I know what uh, we can say because uh, the, the title of the sermon is Has Something Happened in Your Life? And I seriously doubt that anyone here had an experience, anything near what the Apostle Paul had. It's possible that you have, and I've certainly talked to people who have. Some of the men that I spoke with in prison, the experiences of, of what they had when God brought them out of darkness into light are absolutely striking. Somebody should write a book about some of the things that they went through. One man told me, one man told me that he had reached such a point of despair in his life that he finally formed for himself in prison a weapon. So how he did it, I don't know, but he formed for himself a weapon. And he said, I'm going to kill someone, and then I'm going to kill myself. That what, that's what he had resolved finally to do. He had reached such a point that he said, I'm going to kill someone else, and then I'm going to kill myself, and I'm checking out of this life. I'm finished with it. And, bef- and days before, he had, he had the person mapped out. He had his, his modus operandi, you might say. And days before he was going to carry this into effect, a tract was put in his hand. Just something as simple as a, as a theological tract of some kind. And he read it, and he was changed. God immediately called him, just by the reading of that tract, out of darkness and into his light. And the exact same thing happened as we read here in Acts 9. The man's life went completely around. And from hating and cursing at Christians, he came to love them and to promote them. I should have saved that letter. I kicked myself for not saving that letter. I I got it maybe a couple years back. But anyways, that's not the only letter. Many such stories. But at any rate, I ask you this, this evening, my friends, has something happened in your life? And now I don't ask what happened in your life uh, in, in terms of your experience, right? Because God can work in such a soft, gentle, and imperceptible manner in the life of his people. Just so long as we understand, my friends, that even if you, you never can put a, a, a point in time when God converted you, when God saved you, that what really happened in your life, my friends, 
whatever you may have experienced, is just as dramatic as what happened to the Apostle Paul. You passed from death to life. God called you out of darkness and into his light. Now, in what way that happened, every Christian has their own unique story, no question about it. But what happened to Paul on the way to Damascus teaches us In a sense, it teaches us what really happened in our own soul and in God's courtroom. That God's call came to us, calling and calling. And finally, there came that moment in our life when God became too strong for us. And we went from resisting God's call to embracing that call. Now, this may have happened, my friends, in such a sweet and gentle way, even from a child growing up to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. But it still happened. And we must confess that. But God, we read, right, in our call to worship, who is great in mercy, with the great love that he loved us, right, took us out of death, took us out of unbelief, took us out of sin, and brought us into a state of being reconciled to him. And so, uh, we must never think, my friends, that because our particular experience of conversion was like the Apostle Paul's. I know there are those churches that glory in those kind of conversions, right? They're they're the ones that you write books about, right? But still, no matter what our experience may have been, if we have faith in Christ, there was that moment in our life where, as the canon says, he called us and he gave us faith, he gave us repentance, and he brought us out of the dominion of darkness. He brought us into the kingdom of darkness of his son. That, my friends, is the highest privilege that you ever can know. So I ask you again the question, has something happened in your life? Has something happened in your life? And I trust, my friends, that if you're a believer today, every one of us would say, something happened. Something happened so unspeakably significant and far-reaching that I never can believe it. I never can uh, say that in any way I deserved it, or I can lay claim to it. But God apprehended me. Whatever your experience may have been, as believers we can say, God apprehended me. And that is a boast, my friends, that we can make as Christians because it takes all the glory away from us and puts all the glory on God alone. God apprehended me. Well, let us come before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we draw near to you this morning. Our mouths are full of praise and thanksgiving because we never can imagine, Lord, that you would have in your great love taken us out of our sin and of our misery and brought us into the kingdom of your dear Son. There is enough sin in our life, O Lord, that you could condemn us forever and forever. And yet in your great love and in your great mercy, you apprehend us, you seized us out of our own self-chosen destruction and brought us into your family and adopted us as your sons and daughters. Lord, what happened there on the road to Damascus happens in the life of all your people, of all those who believe in Christ. And I pray and we give our thanks to you, O God, that you are too strong for us, that you do not leave us to ourselves, that you did not turn your back on us, Lord, when we turned our back on you, that when we pushed away those goads and those pricks, that you finally overcame us, by your great strength, and called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. 
Lord, we rejoice in your grace and in your goodness to us. And if there are in our midst this morning, Lord, those who are strangers to these things, and who do not know what it is to believe in Christ and to take hold of the promise of salvation in him, Lord, I pray that also this morning you would call them out of darkness and into your light, that you would call them out of their sin and into the kingdom of your dear Son, and that we might rejoice with them that Christ apprehended me. Lord, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn in our blue hymnals again, number 132. Number 132. Number 132, uh, where we hope to sing. In verse 4, Thou who hast sent me many griefs, will yet my soul restore, and out of sorrow's lowest depths will bring me forth once more. Let's sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Verses 1 through 4 of number 132 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.